Farrakh. Hello, hello. Welcome to Open Relationships, Transforming Together. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. I'm joined by colleagues Joanna Schroeder and Brian Adkins. We have an amazing show teed up for you today. We have the one and only Sue Johnson. We'll um, give her introduction in just a few minutes. But I feel like, Brian, you wanted to start off. You had a little something for us. So do you want to just kick us off with a little something interesting and different? Yeah, sure. So because I know uh, today's topic is going to be a lot about therapy um, with Sue Johnson, who has all the accolades in the world. She is amazing and can't wait to talk to her. But there's been something going on a lot. Uh, one of my friends just ran into this issue. I'll, I'll edit their name, the the company's name out when I go to edit the show, but there are companies like, that are what I call um, like kind of fly-by-night therapy. Uh-huh. And it's it's online therapy that, you know, uh, the, the biggest complaint is that there's not a good vetting process, that there's like no quality control um, and that they're finding a lot of people aren't even licensed therapists. So the the two sides of the argument, which is why I kind of really want your guys's opinion on this as people who do coaching and things like that, like the argument on side A says, okay, this is good because uh, it's, it's more affordable than getting real therapy. Um, and a lot of people just need someone to talk to. And the other side of that is saying, okay, but these people aren't licensed and, you know, can be giving really bad advice or damaging and, or, or, or just bad therapists. And like, you know, there's horror stories of people like not even showing up or, or whatever it is. And it's like, does well, that I've even then, heard you know... that it's like, it's some really kind of toxic back and forth, right? Where, or it's like, Hey, you're, you email in, uh, and you're desperate and it's like, Oh, somebody will be back to you in 24 hours. And they and, never show up. <laughs> and, well, or, you know, you're you're at a crisis at the time. Right. And and so that's kind of the question is like, like, is it is it is the benefit offsetting the potential damage? You know what I mean? Like the, the those people that do just need a, someone to talk to. I, I would say a couple of things. One is to me, the, the first thing that comes to mind is um, um, the transparency and what and um, ethics of it. If you if if they say, listen, we they're not licensed, uh, but these are people that have raised their hand. They've got maybe some minimal amount of training, but they're not they're not your sort of typical clinicians. So that to me is the first thing. If they're billing them as licensed credentialed professionals and they're not, then it's like game over. Right. That that's just unacceptable. But if they say, hey, what we have found is that um, as people that we've screened for being uh, compassionate and thoughtful, you know, and you, you, again, you presume they are screened and, and some at least minimal amount of training. Um, could that be um, effective? I, I think it could be versus talking to nobody. I mean, when I think about the, I don't know what kind of training goes into the, the suicide hotline, for example, but I don't believe those are all licensed psychotherapists. I think they're people that, care profoundly and that are there to listen and help people in that moment of distress. And I do think if you can screen to make sure the people that that show up for those kind of online um, 
and they probably shouldn't call it therapy. They should probably call no. it online support, helping, or right. Well, like exactly. you can do peer peer to peer support can be very effective. Mm-hmm. And at that point, when you're if you're upfront, you're like, this is peer to peer support. Then the person right. at least knows. Okay, this is going to help me in one way, and then they also may be trained to be able to be like, you know what? I would suggest you call the suicide hotline, or I would suggest you find a right. clinical licensed clinical therapist. Well, and this whole business of just like really, really listening and mm-hmm. repeating back. Oh, that sounds that sounds really hard, and um, you know, and and maybe reframing it or or um. It, did I get the, is this what you're saying? This is what happened to you? Yeah, it, it is. I'm really sorry. That that empathy and validation, as we've discussed with certain of our, our guests on the show, how profoundly healing and validating that can be. And let me also say this. I'm going to probably get a lot of hate mail. Um, and this isn't theoretical. I've had therapists that have been terrible. Yeah, right. Me too. And so I'm the first to say, uh, God bless the therapists out there and the people that go with the best intentions. They spend a lot of money and time getting the degrees and practicing and so forth. They're a lot of amazing therapists. But I do want to say there are some not so amazing therapists. So even if this organization had licensed credentialed therapists, are they are they the best? You know, and yeah, they might be licensed and credentialed. I'm not licensed or, and credentialed, but I do a lot of coaching. I just got the most amazing letter, like the most amazing letter last night. Somebody that I met recently, just I just got right in there with him. He had an issue. His dad, his dad was estranged. They hadn't been in touch in 20 years. His dad abandoned him when he was a teen. Hadn't been in touch in 20 years. And he and this person and I, we just met at a conference, though we had coffee when I was in New York a handful of weeks ago. I asked him, he because he told me at that dinner, hey, my dad's in hospice. And I said, Oh guy, you gotta reach mm-hmm. out. Like you gotta reach out. And, you know, and then he anyway, not to go on more than I have. But I, I, so I'm not a licensed therapist, but I know for sure that I, in that moment, I gave him uh, some good advice and he just wrote back to me to say, took my advice. He reached out to his dad. They did a Zoom call. And then, you know, the, two days later, he, um, his dad was in, in hospice in, in a different state. And then his dad wasn't able to speak. So my, my new friend read something to him to talk about what it's been like, how he forgives him. And um, and his dad passed away the next day. Right. My, my, my new friend feels so at peace, so liberated, so grateful. Right. So, again, just to, you know, just to say you don't have to necessarily be a licensed credentialed therapist to be an amazing listener and to tell somebody the thing they needed to hear. And, and he knew I just gave myself credit for saying, I just told you what you needed to hear. You just needed to kind of get that little nudge and be encouraged right. to to do this thing and it was the right time you know i was the right person at the right time for him yeah and you brought up a good point too about like sort of like they like shopping around for therapists like um because that i i think that's something that maybe would be for these like online kind of therapy places especially where they are the the entry point to a lot of people mm-hmm. that are lower right. income or have no experience with therapy at all so right. there's like maybe the not uh, transparent understanding that like your first one that you get matched with might not be a match that you have to kind of shop around for. It, it requires, like, yeah, it, it it merits some education. And I don't, I haven't you used gotta any of You got to find your Andrea. Uh, you got to find your Andrea. Um, come to me, baby. Uh, 
But I, I agree. I think that there it is incumbent upon these organizations to provide some education and say up front, you know what? Part of it, oh gosh, there's a bug flying around here. Um, <laughs> part of it is a it is a chemistry and it is a connection between um, two individuals, right? Um, but I, you know, I, I at the same time, what I want to say, and and then let's get to um, to Sue. Um, it's great that this kind of low barrier to entry um, option, you know, lower cost and so forth is available, right? All things being equal, is it better to have it or not have it? I would contend it is to have it. Um, I would love to see, you know, if there's data, like, you know, kind of the, um, in terms of outcomes and results. Um, But, you know, I guess it's like anything, buyer beware, right? Get educated. (laughs) You know, one thing I like about Sue is that she has workbooks. There's a workbook that you can get the book, not just that, then you get the workbook and that is a a low barrier to entry and that a couple can work through that together. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's get to, I think she's in the, the uh, waiting she's room. She's in the right? lobby. I, we should, we, we should welcome our guest onto the show. The one and only Dr. Sue Johnson. I'm so excited to have the Sue joining us. Thank you so, so, so very much. Oh my gosh. Sue, your background is incredible. So just if everybody can listen and appreciate, um, the incredible, the wonder of Dr. Sue Johnson. I'm gonna share a bit about um, uh, who she is and why she's so amazing. Dr. Sue Johnson is a best-selling author, clinical psychologist, researcher, professor, speaker, and a leading innovator in the field of psychotherapy and adult attachment. A genuine pioneer and a true trailblazer, Sue is the primary developer of emotionally focused therapy, EFT, which has demonstrated its incredible effectiveness in over 35 years of peer-reviewed clinical research. EFT is considered the gold standard for couples by innumerable leaders and practitioners in the industry. And these are my words, Sue is regarded by many as its high priestess, but I'm gonna come back to that. Sue has received a variety of awards acknowledging her significant contributions to the field of psychology, including the Order of Canada and the 2022 Lifetime Achievement Award from the Psychotherapy Networker. She has trained thousands of therapists worldwide in the principles and techniques of EFT. Sue has written several books, including her most famous, Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, that has helped, whoop, whoop, there we go. Thanks for the visual, Joanna. Uh, That has helped over a million people, I know, uh, strengthen their relationships. She has recently released a companion workbook that is packed with ways to help couples strengthen their bond and cultivate a lifetime of love. Sue lives in Victoria, British Columbia with her amazing husband, John, who we just met. Uh, She adores the Argentine tango and kayaking on Canada's lakes and seas. And I just gave you like the 0.1% version of Sue Johnson. Sue, thanks again. Um, Welcome, welcome. You're welcome. I I don't think I've ever been called a priestess before. Hi, priestess. It happened here first. Oh, okay, hi. Hi, my goodness. Okay, I, I'm not quite sure what to do with that, but all right, jolly good. Um, well, and I, I just, I want to say we're happy and delighted and thankful to have you here on our show, Open Relationships. You're such a rock star, and I ran across a really wonderful quote from the one and only John Gottman. He stated that you are the best couples therapist in the world. That is high praise, right? And and so many more accolades. So I just said, I'm going to bundle them all up. I'm going to call her the high priestess, and nobody is going to object. So, all right. So there we go. There we go. It's a it's a whole new moniker. 
Um, okay. And, and I say that with sincerity to our viewing and listening audience, this is because of what Sue has pioneered and what she has developed that is so profoundly effective. And yes, you'll find her charming and, and witty and you want to be her best friend. But really what uh, makes me so enthusiastic about having her on our show, she has the goods, folks. She has the goods. So let's get right into it. Um, so we've talked already a little bit about EFT. Uh, I know a lot of people are familiar with it, but I also know that there are a few that have been sitting under a rock that aren't. Um, so will you just talk about what EFT is and just give us a little bit of uh, a foundation um, for the rest of the show? Sure. Um Basically, um, EFT comes out of the humanistic tradition of helping people, and um, it comes out of the work of Carl Rogers, who basically said, wait a minute, in mental health, we seem to be putting people in categories. If we look at them as human beings, we all have places where we get stuck. We all want to grow, and we grow best in safety, in in safe relationships, so the therapist should be safe. And the therapist should focus on the most powerful thing in the room, which is people's emotions, and help them walk into and through their emotions rather than coping with them, containing them all the time, uh, trying to wipe them out, trying to say that they shouldn't have them. So that's a very broad and rich tradition. But um, since it all started really with me, starting to work with couples and realizing that I didn't know what I was doing and neither did anyone else in the field, which was quite a revolution for a passionate young graduate student in psychology. Um, I think it wouldn't have really gone anywhere um, except that um, I linked it. I realized what we were dealing with in distressed couples what in distressed relationships, which are core in all mental health issues for everybody, in distressed relationships, um, was um, disconnection. That everyone was focused on conflict and stopping people fighting and mm -hmm. you know getting people to agree. When in fact, what I saw was um, the real issue was how emotionally disconnected people were. And most distressed relationships were about one person desperately banging on the door and saying, let me in, let me in. And of course they're banging. So the other, they look dangerous to the other person, the other person putting up more barriers and running away. And this dance could go on for years and kind of kept itself going. And this was really me taking me into the work of John Bowlby, who is, um, was a British um, psychologist who started talking in the 1950s and 60s about the fact that we are bonding social animals and that attachment is our natural attachment to others. Um, close attachment to a few precious others in particular is our natural environment. It's our natural ecological niche. If you like, we're fish and close relationships are the water. And that he, what he said was that mental health and relationships and society in general had started to ignore this most basic fact about human beings. Can I just, I just want to interject real quick. I just want for listeners to, I mean, it's such an amazing analogy. We are fish and our, our closest bonds are our water. And I, 
I just really want to drive home what's been fascinating, especially as I've studied more and more of your work, that we often think of relationships as a nice to have, but they are a need to have. And I feel like there's, That's an, right. and you know, we can get into sort of this a myth of the, you know, this toxic myth of hyper-individualism, which I think is, you know, has really caused so much um, um, just disruption and danger and, and hurt and heartache. But I just, I wanted people to get that analogy in their heads we are fish and our closest relationships are our water. We can't, we can't survive without them. Anyway, sorry, can you just pick up where you were? No, thank you, because I think it's very important. Because if you, if you think about it, if you take a fish out of water, mm -hmm. it looks like, it looks weird. It, it can't function. It flops about. It's it's it it's it, a myth. Yeah, it it uh, what's the word? It doesn't starve. It suffocates. It's it doesn't. It's not able yeah. to get its oxygen, right? Yeah, and and there's more and more evidence apart from attachment science, which we use in EFT to understand human beings. It's a developmental theory of personality, but it's also all about relationships. It puts people in the context of their closest relationships. You know, if you if you look at it, there's more and more research that one of the core core issues in our society is loneliness and you know um i think things have changed hopefully in that um loneliness was kind of um you can see it as just oh well that's the way life is we're all alone if you want to be philosophical mm -hmm. uh, just buck up you know mm -hmm. or you can say no no um this was very popular a few years ago no no you know uh, strong human beings are more or less self-sufficient. They can look at themselves in the mirror every morning and say, God, you're wonderful, mm -hmm. and that's enough. Well, the only people who do that are psychopaths, actually. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that we all want to be psychopaths. So, you know, um, there were those sort of ways of, of looking at it. But what attachment science says and what all the new research says is that we ignore human beings' need for safe emotional connection with a few others and a community, a safe community, but basically for a few others who will come when we call. It's as basic as that. Who will come when we call, when we need. And if we have that safe connection, that's kind of a place to stand in life. It's a place to, to define who you are, to grow, and you naturally grow. That's safety. In EFT, we say belonging leads to becoming. That safety lets you grow and and face life challenges and problem solve. But when you don't have that safety, then you're like a fish out of water. You're okay. flopping around. Then and I think that's one of the reasons why we've at the point where, um, you know, mental health professionals, some of them now have books that look very official with something like 360 diagnoses in them. This is ridiculous. <laughs> that might be one of the unpopular things. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, when I look at all the people that I see and EFTs done in all kinds of cultures all over the world with all kinds of different religions and classes of people in the slums of South Africa, in Iran, in Finland. Wow, congratulations. Uh, yeah, they don't like talking about their relationships very much, the Finns. They're very reserved. You know, and, um, you know, EFT's done everywhere. And 
the the common thing you see is never mind all the diagnoses. People tell you they're depressed, they're anxious, they're alone, they don't know how to create the relationships they need. They tell you that, um, well, my, my last client was perfect. She said, I don't want to feel because it's overwhelming and I don't know what to do with my feelings. No, no one's ever shown me yeah. what to do with them. Um, but I can't live numb and empty either. So I'm stuck. And I said, yes, I hear you. I hear you. That's a very brilliant, a profound and courageous thing that you're saying to me. I understand. I understand completely what you're saying. You know, and I felt like saying you and millions and millions yeah. of other people. Uh, um, you know, we live in incredibly affluent world in North America. And um, there has to be a, a reason why the, the rates of depression and anxiety are skyrocketing, particularly in our young people. We need to look at this. So I, you asked me what EFT is. I, never... um, EFT is an approach to growing people. Yeah. It's, yep. a, it's not just a, a way of helping people cope. It's an approach to growing people that sees people as social bonding animals and privileges emotion because we really, whether you come to EFT as a distressed couple, as a distressed individual or as a distressed family, because we work with them all, um, we really see people as stuck in certain patterns of dealing with their emotion and dealing with relationships and they're just stuck. They just kind of read the patterns, just replay. And what we do basically in a very simple terms is we create safety. We hold people, we reflect their reality to them so they can make sense of it. And we help them look at how they construct that reality every day, every minute, what, what they do with the feelings in their body, what they say to themselves about themselves, whether they reach for others or not, how they shut others down, how they shut themselves down, how they create this inner world, and then how they turn around and create the world with significant others. And it's all about emotion. It's like, if you like, it's speaking of metaphors, fish and water and all that, it's like a dance. Yeah. We look at the dance people do with their own emotions, their own experience themselves and the dance they do with others and how those things in most people who come to see us and in many of us kind of narrows down at some point in our life where we can't grow and we can't understand what's happening. We feel overwhelmed, you know, and there's not that many ways we have of dealing with being overwhelmed as human beings, but I'm, I think I'm trying to answer you in a very general way i don't know if it's working oh no it's me. great and i i do have a i'm bubbling with questions i know joanna yeah, me too is. me too <laughs> um but i i have to ask because i love uh i was like oh i i love how um how you are uh willing to say these unpopular truths one that one statement you made in a podcast that i listened to you asserted that freud was wrong and so i would <laughs> yeah. hear that i'd love to talk to me a little bit more about why Freud is wrong. And I'm not just like, zing, you know, like, oh, it's a fun zing. It is a fun zing. I, I attest to that. But I think it's so much deeper than that because modern, I mean, I'm, I'm not a scholar of psychotherapy, 
but I know enough, I believe, to say, you know, when I think about hyper-individualism and, and how much of the West um, has evolved in terms of psychology, I mean, I, I feel like this Freudian approach has been the cornerstone of, of you know, a lot of how um, people have been treated. Well, that's a rich vein. We could go into that a thousand ways. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, if you go very basically, Freud said that the most powerful thing that decides human beings and their lives and what they do were the deep inner instincts of sex and aggression and what they did with them. That's what Freud said. Right. Bowlby said, and by the way, he was roundly hated for this, of course. He was uh, completely ostracized and attacked. And Bowlby was? Yes, Bowlby was. He was um, threatened to be thrown out of all kinds of professional organizations. He was castigated. He was shunned as only the British can do it. The British are um, British are good at that sort of stuff. So he was he was shunned because he basically said, no, Freud was wrong. The most powerful thing in human beings is not the instincts of sex and aggression. The most powerful thing in human beings is the need for an emotional sense of connection with another human being. And that is basic. That is why we've survived. Actually, my colleague, Franz Duvall, who's probably the greatest living primatologist in the world, who writes books about animals, but he's really writing about us, of course, because we're animals. Uh -huh. um, he says that if our ancestors, if our evolutionary ancestors had been um, distant and aloof, we would never have survived. We would never be at the top of the evolutionary chain, which you could argue we're not, but some people think we are. Right. So, um, you know, uh, basically, Bowlby said, no, we're relational. And if you look at a child, you know, a child seeks connection and the most basic human conversation that starts when we're very small and ends when we take our last breath is basically reach and respond, reach and respond. Reach and respond. Are you there? And the most basic question in love relationships is not, are we the same and do we agree? And are we going to fight about this? And are we going to agree about that? It's not. The most basic question is, are you there for me? L-E-R-E. Are you accessible, open, responsive, and engaged? Are you there for me when I call when you come? Can I count on you? Do you value me? Am I precious? If I call, will you put other things aside and come to me? You know, because I'm precious to you. I'm special to you. This is, this is the most basic needs of human beings. The thing about attachment science is, um, and why it's so profound as a basis for helping people and helping people understand their lives and their relationships is, it's biology, biology that tells you how come your nervous system is profoundly tuned to and completely responds to the look on other people's faces. What happens to you when your partner, when you're scared and you look at your partner and your partner turns and puts their arms out to you and holds you, what happens to you? How come your nervous system goes, ah, oh. How come your nervous system comes? That's the way you're built. Basically, what we've learned is there's a structure to our emotions, the signals we give, the signals our, our 
um, our nervous system gives us, there's a structure to relationships. There's a structure to how we put our identity together. And once you know the structure, once you have a map, then growing people is a delight. Talk about the map. Yeah, because I, I had map done as one of my questions. So you, you led right there. And I want to I do want to come back. And, well, actually, I'll just emphasize again for everybody listening and watching. First of all, 70 percent of our communication is nonverbal. So when Sue talks about that look, we all know the look or the or or the not look. Right. They're not even noticing like, oh, like they're not even noticing. Ah, dagger to the heart. Right. And how how we co-regulate. And I guess I would say how we co-disregulate, right? Yes. And you're saying something really important. For example, in our research studies, we would take people, hundreds of people by this point, changing their relationship. And we'd look, we'd look and saw, we saw that some people had what we call a hold me tight bonding relationship. And some people didn't. And um, the people who had the hold me tight bonding relationship had great relationship at the end of therapy. Uh-huh. And it didn't seem to have much to do with how distressed they were when they came in either. And um, they felt better about themselves. They were less uh, dis- they were less depressed. They were less anxious. And when we tested it three years later, these results had held. That's one powerful, powerful result for a short-term psychotherapy, okay? Yeah, I just want to emphasize right there the efficiency of EFT and efficacy, meaning it's effective and and efficient, and that it's lasting is to me. I want everybody who's even even slightly unhappy in their marriage or any relationship issue to to really tune in here. And it's not just for marriage, right? As as Sue says, it's for individuals and it's for families. But go ahead, I, I interrupted you. I wanted to just clarify something quickly too. As somebody who's not a psychologist, what mattered to me a lot when I first read the book, which was well before we even started this podcast was understanding that what is happening in this process is first creating safety. And Sue said that, but in practice, I think one of the reasons we're so afraid to go to therapy is because we think we're gonna sit down on a couch and we're gonna have to say like, when my mother didn't get me the Christmas present that I wanted on Christmas and I felt, and it starts with that and then we're gonna have to cry about our grandparents and we're gonna have to talk about our sex problems that we're having in our marriage right away the first moment and become vulnerable, that's really overwhelming. And what I love about everything that's outlined in Hold Me Tight was, no, you first need to be able to reconnect and feel safe and express love and have this place where then you can open up to hear, here are my wounds and open it up and feel safe enough to say, I'm really sorry for the role that I played in those wounds. And that's so different. Yes, it's so different and it's it's so human, if you like. It's not about a professional telling you what's wrong with you or giving you tips to cope with your life. It's somebody who sees your humanness, recognizes it, helps you hold it and accept it, walk into it and through it. And I just want to stay with the point Andrew was making about the nonverbals. What we saw in all these tapes of the couples that did did go through and really use EFT. We saw them having these hold me tight conversations. But what we realized, and now we teach therapists this, is 
if you're going to take people into a level of emotional engagement where they really change, they don't change in therapy if doesn't matter what model you're using, the research says people don't change unless they're really emotionally engaged in the therapy. Okay. And people don't get emotionally engaged if they're they're vigilant and they don't feel safe. Yeah. Why would they? Okay. They're not going to open themselves up. But what we notice, speaking of nonverbals, is that if you're going to work with emotion, take people into their emotions and through, help them befriend those emotions, help them accept themselves and their emotions and be able to use those emotions, you have to do it in a way that in with music that fits the bonding neurons in your body. So if I say the most profound things to you, high and fast, uh, you know, and lots of therapists go through training and never look at their own tapes of therapy, okay? Not in, e not in EFT. Mm -hmm. We train people, we show our tapes, we show what we do. A lot of big gurus these days never show what they do. Yeah. We show what we do all the time. We show you, you know, we get people to to look at their own tapes when they're in training. If you say the most profound things, like, um, and you say it high and fast, okay? You say, um, yes, I really understand. I really understand that for you, you've always, always, always been alone and you're terrified, terrified. Now you can't risk, you can't even reach for anyone. You can't even recognize your partner's look of love because you're so terrified that if you recognize it, you'll lose it immediately. Doesn't work. So stressful. Just hearing yeah, that, I got no, stressed out. No, stop. What? <laughs> well, I'm talking to your prefrontal cortex. Yeah. I'm talking to your information channel. Yeah. If I want you to move into emotions in a different way and dance with yourself differently and dance with your partner differently, I have to talk to your amygdala. <laughs> I have to say, yes. Yes. That's so sad, isn't it? You're dying for love. Inside, you're longing for love. But somehow, when it's offered, right here, right now, can't trust it. It looks dangerous. That's so hard. So you turn away, and you're all by yourself, yeah? Yeah, that's so hard. Some we, maybe we all do that at some point in our lives. That's so hard. That you are the amygdala whisperer. The, the the rumor and the myth is true. We just saw it in action. <laughs> but it's brilliant. That, that is brilliant. Well, you, in other words, you have to know. Reach and respond sounds like a, a formula, but if you look at a John Bowlby looked at mothers and children. He said that his his theory of attachment science, which I think is should be the basis of all psychotherapy, but you know that's another unpopular view in some people in my field. Um, you know, but um, I mean, John Bowlby just basically looked at mothers and children, but it's not a bad model. For years, nobody would. I would talk about adult attachment, and people would almost curl their lip in in um, contempt, okay? Oh, When I first okay. started talking, oh yeah, I was persona non grata, persona non -grata despite all the other accolades. Yeah, I just couldn't bear to, I just knew that this stuff was gold. I just couldn't not follow it, you know, but um, he looked at mothers and children 
and the bonds between them. And he looked at um, mothers who had secure bonds with their children, and he looked at the way they interacted. You know, um, they weren't distant and blaming and judgmental and telling the kid information and telling the kid what to do all the time. You know, they also came close, dropped their voice, talked softly. And what does that do? The, the relationship message there is, I'm here. You're safe with me. I'm here for you. I see you. I see you. You know, the number of um, people who come to me who are traumatized, have been traumatized in, in, in their family of origin, and they always say the same things. They say things like, nobody saw me, I was invisible. <clears throat> nobody saw me, I was invisible. Um, you know, we can't do that as human beings. The, the, the idea that we should be able to look in the mirror and tell ourselves we're wonderful and that should be all right is ridiculous. Right. That's back to the being a, a, a psychopath, right? Or or narcissist yeah. or, you know, something that is yeah. not at all the kind of person that we, uh, you know, want to grow. Um, no. But I that's want, right. I want to come back to the map. And, and in part, again, I feel like I'm bubbling with more questions, Joanne. I know you are too. But I, you know, when I think about um, this business of having a map, is that how to, how to, what is that? And how do people get it? Well, for example, if um, there's a book just out, no, not just, it was um, someone talking to the Dalai Lama. Uh, please don't get me wrong. I have huge, huge. I'm a bad Buddhist, okay? So I have huge <laughs> respect for the Dalai Lama and and that whole tradition, okay? But uh, it was Sharon Bedgley, who I also respect, but they wrote this book called Distractive Emotions, which I found most annoying. And um, in the about page three of the book, it says something like there are, you know, um, 1,680... Um, negative emotions are you joking well then i just better give up being a a psychotherapist because mostly pe people come to me because they're struggling with what bolby called frightening alien and unacceptable emotions so are you kidding me so no you can't do that and people like ekman who write about emotion people like john bolby basically say no if you listen to people, if you listen to human beings all over the world in different cultures, and if you listen to people, really, we're all struggling in the end. We struggle with anger, and anger can be positive, but lots of times it's kind of reactive and it's a defensive reaction to threat. What we're all struggling with is grief, sadness, loss, um, fear, fear of abandonment and rejection. Mm -hmm. Fear of the fact that we cannot control our lives. We are vulnerable whether we like it or not. We all know mm -hmm. we're going to die. Mm -hmm. We all know that we will lose things, right? We don't, we're not in control of our environment, no matter what the culture, the present culture tells us with all our Rambo movies. And <laughs> well, I mean, not, it's more, we're, it's we're more mythology, right? I mean, we have a, we have a pop culture that's dominated in mythologies you know, from the toxic uh, hyper-individualism and it's just that sole pioneer or sole CEO or sole person that just made it on their own to wait, like describe right. that, that we actually have control 
And I, I feel like there's so That's much right. in our, our mythology that is causing people to be profoundly upended because they, they can't live up to these toxic myths, and, and nor should they. Exactly, exactly right. They can't live up. And, and there's very little out there that really says, oh, this is who we are. See, I think attachment science does this. It says, this is who we are. We are human beings who, whose most basic need is for emotional connection, to know we matter to others and that they will come when we call. And this is more basic than sex or aggression. And when we don't have that, we start to fall apart. We have, we go into very negative ways of coping with it, like addiction, which is just a way of numbing yourself out and getting out of the pain. Right. And basically we struggle with sadness, loss, uncertainty. Um, we struggle with fear of all kinds, vulnerability, and no solution vulnerability often because we don't know how to find a solution. So we're overwhelmed, right, by our emotions. And then we say, oh, emotion is the enemy. And we struggle with shame for what you just said, which is somehow we feel that if we hurt this way and if we can't find a way to feel competent and confident and special, which is what all the magazines tell us we're supposed to feel, um, then there's obviously something wrong with us. And just to give you a feel for the kind of map, Bowlby, Bowlby as a young man walked through the streets of London and he, he looked at the, this is how it all started. He looked at the delinquents that were lining the streets of London and the, um, the, the, the sort of mode of the day, the mode of the day was that these delinquents were just bad boys, mostly boys. Um, what we were supposed to do with them is is just punish them and put them in jail, and then they'd learn, right? Sounds like, a, like a lot is, like a, in America too, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, you know, all societies go to that one. What he said was, you have to look at the despair underneath the contempt. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the pain underneath the anger. Now, I haven't got that quote exactly i'll give it to you exactly because i've got it taped on my on my microphone he said behind indifference is misery behind callousness despair right and the basic message people give is i will never be hurt again yeah and to do that you have to shut down trouble is when you shut down you can't grow there's no solution. You're you're stuck. You're stuck in a trap. So, you know, <clears throat> that's what Bobby said. And an attachment oriented therapy like EFT sees people's pain, sees people's aloneness, and valid. But I'll give you a good example. Uh, one lady I work with that I'm using right now to teach therapists. She had five different diagnoses. I can't remember what they all were now. Of course, one is always borderline with women. Women, when when doctors don't know what to do with women, don't you know we're, we're, we're borderline, okay? I don't quite know what that means, neither does anyone else, but, you know, it's, it's bad, okay? And so she had all these diagnoses. When we go into her emotions and take this view that Bulby has of us as human beings and our vulnerabilities and what they are, and how we only have so many ways of coping with them, especially when we're alone, when we feel alone and rejected and abandoned. Um, you know, when you go into that kind of vulnerability, you know, Bobby would say said things like, 
it's easier for children. It's actually functional for children to say to themselves, um, I can't find mommy and daddy. I'm all alone. Mommy and daddy are, are sometimes cruel to me or distant. This is terrifying. Life is terrifying. I'm overwhelmed. It must be that I'm a bad little boy or girl. Right. Yeah. It must be that I'm bad. There's hope in that because then I can be a good little boy or girl and, and mommy and daddy will love me. It's much better than saying, I'm a small, vulnerable, fragile little being, totally alone in the world with no safety anywhere and anything could happen and I have no control and no one will come because no one cares. You can't bear that. That's the, yeah, that's the existential, yeah. that's the, the greatest existential risk. I'm having a light bulb moment connecting a few things together here. We know right now that our young men and teenage boys and all teenagers, but particularly our young men and teenage boys are really struggling with their mental health. Suicide rates are horrifyingly high. And we know that lockdown and being isolated played a part in that. But I'm also thinking about, and, and, and Sue, you might relate to this since your children were born at a similar time as my older children, that there was such a sense of heroic individualism for moms that I, as a mom, was expected to do everything. I did every single thing. I changed 90% of the diapers. I was the one that was up with the kids all the time. I did the cleaning. I did the cooking. I knew all of it. I did that whole mental load. It's being called out a lot more right now. But when I, you know, I think in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, if you had children then, being the only one who did all of it was heroic. And now I'm thinking about those children, 15 to 25, and that sort of shut down that, I wonder if the way we reacted, being afraid to ask for help, being afraid to be connected because we were supposed to be alone. I wonder if there's a way in which we taught that to these children. I don't know if we taught it to them. I think, I think when we don't build a society based on who human beings are and what they really need, um, we end up in impossible situations and we fall through the cracks. Right. And certainly I resonate with your idea that women, you know, feminism was supposed to be a liberation, I think. Mm -hmm. That's my idea of it. Um, speaking as a feminist, that's how I see it. Or was it? It seems to me we switched I don't just want to be at home, the little woman at home I want a life. Yeah. What we did, which is so female, which is we said, I want a life and I'll, I'll do all the other stuff yes, as well. Yes. I'll do it all as well. So I'll be the most perfect mother, the most perfect partner. I'll be ever so sexy. I'll wear all kinds of lingerie mm -hmm. and, and, you know, um, shave my pubic hair in the exact shape of that you, you would like. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll be a friend to my friends yes, and I'll be in the community and I'll be the CEO of a company and I'll write books and I'll, you got to be joking. It's a lot. Oh, by the way, I'll be the most perfect mum. Is there a woman anywhere in this civilized world who does not feel that she was not a good enough mum? Yeah. It totally. I don't think so. It's like the, the book More Work for Mother, the basic premise of it is that as technology increases that's supposed to make women's lives easier it just we just started piling more things on women before you had 
refined flour that came in bags. People didn't make cakes. And then you could get flour in a bag. And so all of a sudden women had to make cakes every night. And now we're <laughs> we're living and it's observed. It's a fewer wonderful cakes. book. Uh, I just add at open relationships. I want to say fewer cakes, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and now it's like <laughs> not only do I I have a job. I also have all these kids. I have to do all the kids stuff. Now there's technology. I also have to, you know, mirror my son's Instagram on my phone and make sure that he's not being rude to people. And I have to know where he is and track him on Life 360. There's 100 apps that are supposed to make it easier to parent. And what it actually is doing is making me bonkers. That's right. Because it gives you all these expectations. And one of the, the things that happened to John Bowlby as he became more famous was that the feminists, the more radical feminists went for him in England and told him that he was um, putting an impossible load on, on mothers. And his response was, and I think that's a real distortion of Bowlby. If I understand Bowlby and attachment and all that we've studied in attachment, because really adult attachment as a field only got going at the beginning of this century, and I've been very honored as a clinician to be part of that, okay, there's now thousands of studies on adult attachment, but it's still not really out in the mainstream. I don't think so. People are using the word more, you know, but Bowlby basically said, and I hope this is right, Bowlby basically said, no, you don't have to be the perfect mother according to some formula. The bottom line is attachment says you have to be able to emotionally connect with your kids. That's the answer. You don't have to do, oh, I, I'll, t I'll be, a, I, I do this. My son knows it. He doesn't mind. For example, me and my son. Okay. Um, you know, I certainly wasn't the most perfect mother. I was doing research studies and, and uh, teaching people over the world. And there was a point which was a bit crazy. Actually, I didn't do this till he was older where I was on a plane, you know, every weekend going to talk to somebody, which became a bit crazy. But the bottom line is I had an emotional connection with my son. And so he could tell me he was mad. He could, t we could fight. You know, I could say very unmotherly things to him. <laughs> when I think about it now, like you are a little creep. You are the most, you are the most judgmental, horrible little creep I've ever met in my life. Are you my son or are you, where did you come from? Yeah, you know, we, and we still do, we fight. Okay. Cause now in terms of politics, we, 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 um, we seem to have suddenly found ourselves in different camps, which is most bizarre, but, uh, for me, but I listen to him and I learn surprise, surprise. I learn, you know, I say things to him like conservatives believe this. You know, and it, and he says, no, you know, I don't believe that. And, and so we learn from each other. There's an openness and a responsiveness. And when we have hurt each other in our lives, he's now 32. When we have hurt us each other in our lives, we come back and we say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I wasn't listening. I'm so sorry. I. I um, didn't hear you and I don't want you to feel hurt. And um, this is what was happening to me. And this is the emotional connection. Bobby was saying, this is the, this is the, this is, this is like oxygen for us. This is not an incidental. This is a necessity. This is like oxygen. 
This is what you give to your kids. This is our water. You we kid. are fish and this is our water, right? Like one of the big fights we had, I remember it, was I said to my son when he was about, I don't know, what was he? Had he gone to university? No, I think he was in last year of high school. We would go for coffee. And I remember saying to him, um, it's me or the phone. It's me or the iPhone. Oh, God. Uh, you so you made the cardinal uh, You made the cardinal mistake. I yeah. do that all the time. It's like it's a little bit that's around. It's like, oh, are you going to make good on that one? So I, I said to him, if you're coming out with coffee for coffee with me and we're going to be connected, which is my intention, I can't compete with your phone. I'm mm -hmm. so sorry. I don't know how. Mm -hmm. um, you are distracted by it constantly. You're monitoring it. I won't do it. I find it so upsetting. I won't do it. So I'm so sorry. I'd rather not go for coffee. Oh, my goodness. The first couple of times I did it. Oh, like full-blown 17-year-old outrage. You know, and I was, what was I? I was old. I was old. I was, I was silly. I was, you know, I don't know what I was. I was everything. We never get it. We I, never get it with the teenagers. Mom, you just don't get it, right? That's right. You don't get it. But I did get it. And I said, here's what I get for me. You get me or the phone. You don't get both. Uh, and and so finally he he slammed the phone down, right? And we went and had coffee. And um, that was me basically saying, no, there's nothing more important. Information is not connection. There's nothing. We mistake the two. We think we get like my daughter said to me once, I have 350 friends on on Facebook. I said, no, you don't. They're not friends. You don't know who they are and they don't know who you are. They're not friends. They will not come when you call, right? And um, so this, we've, you know, I think Bowlby basically said, emotional connection is where it's at. And that was... When I say it to you right now, it might sound obvious, but the field of couples therapy was, oh, so not there. I In the beginning, when I started showing my tapes, and I had research right from the beginning, right from my thesis, right? Um, in the beginning, when I started showing my tapes, I would be told mostly by, I must say, by elder academic gentlemen, let's call them that. Um, I would be told that I was uh, creating enmeshment, codependency. I was collapsing people. I was, I was messing with people's ability to define themselves. I was, I think codependency was the big one I was creating. I was creating neurosis. I was, and I, it was obvious to me. I would show a tape and I would say, I, you know, I, I actually remember showing this tape and saying, I'm awfully sorry, but are you looking at the same video as me? I'm looking at these people, these two people. It was a lesbian couple, actually. Uh, uh, I said, I'm looking at these two women. They are being incredibly courageous and open. Really? They are dealing with their emotions in a balanced way. They are talking about what they need. They are trying to listen to each other. They are, they are, this seems to me to be, they're showing a moment of real mental health and connection. Well, and maturity, uh, right? No, when I was told, no, you're collapsing them. 
Wow. I said, what do you mean? Oh, what you mean is she's crying. Is that what you mean? But if you listen to her as she's crying, she's actually pinpointing her emotions, befriending them, sharing them and using them as a compass to what she needs. Isn't that, doesn't that look like health to you? No. <laughs> so what, okay. I so said, well, it looks like health to me. So there you go and go to hell, which was my, my backup <laughs> thing in the, in the beginning was, I will talk to you and then go to hell. Okay. Well, I mean, I always feel like when you're a, a pioneer, you're going to disrupt the status quo, right? And and people are going to come out and feel threatened. But talk about this codependency, just a, if you don't mind, just another uh, minute or two. What are people getting, I mean, I guess in part, um, what are they getting wrong, right? Because agreed, codependency is on the one hand, a bad thing, but I've actually never thought about it like this before. We need to be dependent. Yeah. I mean, that's your whole point. Like, within measurement. To be dependent. There's effective dependency. Right. And ineffective dependency. Okay. Correct. Um, and and if you're, when I would get these, not so much now, people don't use those words so much anymore, but I would get these um, referrals, you know, and the referrals would be things like, oh, this is a codependent woman, you know, and, and I would look and I'd see she's anxiously attached. Okay. She keeps calling to her partner. She does it in a way that's difficult for him to hear because she's angry and she's confused and she's overwhelmed. So her messages aren't very clear. And what he does is he, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he turns and he persuades her that there's something wrong with her, that she shouldn't feel these things and need these things. And she believes him. And then she loses all balance and all ground because then she hears, I'm unlovable. And what on earth do you do with that besides crawl under a rock? And then she'd crawl under a rock. And then he'd say, there you are, you see, you know, you're, you're, you're depressed. It's your problem. And then she'd come out spitting and enraged. And everyone would say, look, you see, she's completely unhinged. The issue is we would take people like that. And I'm thinking of a woman. It wasn't always women who did that. Men did it slightly differently. Men would say things like, well, I'm a very manly man and I need sex three times a day. And my response inside my head would be, no, you don't, buddy. What you need is for someone to hold you and for you to be able to ask for that, but you can't. Okay, but I, but I, I can't. That's a huge insight. I have to wait for him to get there, right? But it's... We would take those people and we would work with them in EFT for 15 sessions and everything would shift. Okay, hang on. That's so a great point person... because you talk about the efficiency of EFT. 15 sessions are people coming to you or your colleagues once or twice a week, typically? No, usually once. When we used to do it in research studies, we did it once a week. Okay. The point is, if you know where you're going, if you know what home looks like, you can take people there. If you don't know where you're going and you're messing about trying to have 30 ways of understanding people's emotions and how they deal with them and how they push other people away when they want them to come close, you can go round the houses forever. Well, and I think that's why psychotherapy gets dunked on as much as it does. And this idea that, to Joanna's point, you lie on your couch, you dunk on your parents, you feel badly, and and for years and years. And by the way, I'm not dunking on psychotherapy. I I appreciate that it has been very beneficial for some, but I 
it strikes me, A, that there's a huge dependence on the therapist itself. And I want to come back to that. Um, what I love about EFT is the this idea of process. And when I think about 15 sessions, that is three and a half months. That is not three and a half years. It is not 35 years, right? It is a relatively small amount of time to have your relation, not even just your your marriage, but give, being given this map and and uh, to understand this, it is a it is a chance for transformation in less than four months. I mean, that's a I will yes. take that trade any day. Well, yes, I, I think the thing is, um, one of the huge things that got in the way of couples therapy and got in the way of helping people with relationships is all this stuff about how, um, hey, you, 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 you suggested I come up with some um, unpopular, unpopular views. views. This is, we'll take this another is, one. I've got another one now. I've got tons of them, okay. Um, one of them is that love is a mystery, you know, and really it's all about sex and um, sexual desire and sexual desire has best before date. So, you know, love is like kind of like a, what they're really talking about is infatuation. That's and what then, they're talking about, not love. Okay? Right. And, but the idea was love is a mystery. You can't understand it. Well, then what on earth are you going to do in couples therapy? Because the fact of the matter is most couples come and they don't just want less conflict. They want love. They want to feel safe and connected in their relationship and they don't know how to do that. They have no idea. Half of them have never actually seen a good relationship. So how would they start? They've never seen the dance they're trying to do. They just know their nervous system just keeps saying, this isn't it, this isn't it, this isn't it. Where is it? Where is well, it? Where and they is live, it? And so they're living in, you know, using the fish analogy, it's like they're living in in something that's not exactly water. I don't even, I'm, I'm totally screwing up the analogy here. Well, they keep, they, they keep trying to get into the water. They right. dive in, they have a moment where they can breathe and then they're out again. They don't even know. Some of they don't even know what it feels like when we help people have hold me tight conversations. Um, you know, therapists, we've trained therapists all over the world, thousands of therapists, and we've had very resistant groups of therapists. Okay. Sure. I believe we've that. had very resistant clients. We do, we do our stuff with the U S military and the Canadian military. And that's so cool. I remember going and running up a, a group years ago. At Leavenworth, with a whole bunch of um, folks who soldiers and their wives, who the soldiers had been on three deployments. Give me a break, eighteen months each. This is too much. This is too much. This is too much. And the relationships were in tatters, you know. And we would get. I remember one guy said to me, "Ma'am, can you explain to me exactly how this is going to make me a better soldier?" I said, yes, Lieutenant, I can. Sit down, take out your notebook, and I'll give you five points. And I wasn't Excellent. kidding. Excellent. Okay, I wasn't kidding because securely attached people are more confident. They trust their experience. They're better at dealing with stress. They're more flexible when they deal with stress. They keep their emotional balance under stress. They're better at dealing with other people so they create more coherent teams i gave you it's all these so then it's just so foundational right and that's i, I feel yep. like that's it's uh just a round of applause for uh for sue because this work is so foundational oh yeah here we go 
And in fact, it made me think, I wrote down, you said the most basic need is that we matter. I have long, you know, I was a CEO and leader. Um, I always say the best advice I got was probably 10, 15 years ago, make sure your your team know you care, right? You, you essentially are saying the same thing. Part of me can't help not, yes. to, not to hijack the conversation. Do you have a book for CEOs? Because I feel like we spend so much, or leaders, right? We spend so much of our time, so many of us as as professionals, we're in organizations, right? I would think that this would work. It works for the military. It works in you know in families and couples. Do you do you train or do you ever think about um, applying this specifically? To- it has it has been applied. Uh-huh. It does work with with keeping people engaged and creative and in teams. Of course, it uh-huh. does. Because the bottom line is, and the reason the codependency argument is all off, is that all the research says safe connection with a few others, that internal sense that you matter to a few others who will come when you call, makes you stronger, Amen. not weaker. It makes you stronger. That's why you're the high priestess. So, you know. <laughs> well, and so when I say to somebody, yes, this is the nub, you know, you're, this depressed lady who came to see me, we worked with her, I was talking about her before, and she had all these um, diagnoses. And when we went into her emotions and I stayed with her and I said, yes, and I was with her and I allowed her to have her emotions, what she came up with was, she was heartbroken. Mm. And you can call that depression if you like, you can call it borderline, you can call it anxiety disorder, you can call it OCD, you can call it any damned intellectual name you like she was heartbroken and that that we know what to do with that what you do with heartbreak is i stay with you i hold you we go through it together you weep you allow yourself the longings that you've shut down for years so as not to hurt and you grow that's it it's like that's the so that's an example of map that's an example of, so, you know, we would work with these with these very resistant um, therapists or people like that guy who said, ma'am, can you kindly tell me how to be a better soldier? You know, I think I said something mean at the end, something like, and soldier, not only that, but after doing this course with us, you'll be a better husband and a better lover and you'll be better friends with who you are inside yes you'll be able you'll be able to hold you more yeah and we took both people through that so yeah and you know this stuff is wired into us it's like we didn't create it it's we're plugging into the basic science of who we are which is why couples go to our they even do it online they go to our hold me tight online program right which is getting a bit old now we need to revise it with some younger couples, but hey, it's still a damn good program. And, you know, we, people go and they take that program when they're doing couple therapy or just by themselves, and they sit together and they do this interactive program online that teaches them how to have a hold me tight conversation. These conversations um, shift everything, our whole nervous system response to them. They're not just, how can I say it? 
um, they go to the level of identity. So, um, you know, they go to the basic level of, um, can I trust life? Can I, is there a place for me mm. in life? You know, when somebody listens to you and takes your vulnerability and holds it with you and is there for you, you get, I'm acceptable, I am lovable, I am special to this person, even with all my flaws, I matter, I am, this is about identity, right? When our experiences, when you take people into this vulnerability, help them understand their needs, whether you're doing individual or couple therapy, their sense of connection with self changes. They have a more sense, secure connection with self. Their sense of being able to let other people in change, they become stronger, which is what Bobby said. Bobby said, strongly connected people with, with even one secure relationship with one parent are more resilient, more balanced, more able to deal with life than people who've, you know, I mean, Bobby was sent away at, I can't remember exactly how old, he was sent away to English boarding school. Yeah. He said, I wouldn't send a dog to English boarding school. <laughs> like, and I wouldn't send my dog. I have two dogs that I adore. I wouldn't send my dogs to English boarding school now because they come to me every morning and they look at me and they put their head on my knee and they're saying, am I yours? Yeah. Do I matter? Are you there for me? Are you going to feed me biscuits? Can I count on you? Are we together? And I say, yes, you're my beautiful, beautiful, beautiful doggy. You know, and I think that's why we love dogs. Dogs show us they love us yeah. and they need well, us. Well, yeah. They don't mess about. Uh, they just, they don't mess about. Unconditionally. But I want to come back to this whole business of identity, the sense of self. I see you. I mean, it strikes me for me to be able to see, say, I see you say to my husband or my kids, uh, it's like something has to change in me. It's like I need to be, uh, I, and I don't know how to articulate it, but I, I feel like that sense of self, it's like if I have the ability to see, almost like see and accept myself, then I can see and accept my husband and the people around me, right? And am I, I feel like I'm simplifying it, but it feels like it feels hopeless um, if I if I can't do it for myself, then it feels like I, how can I possibly hold that space for somebody else? Um, you're right, but I don't. You're right, but that's one of the <laughs> things that the um, popular media say that I think is misleading. <laughs> so you're right, and um, it's confusing because the popular media say things like. You have to accept yourself before you can accept other people. Okay, then my response when people say that to me is, okay, then clever. Tell me how you accept, tell me how you start to accept yourself. If you don't have any body reaching for you and you've never had any models and you don't know what it looks like and you don't even know what acceptance feels like. So yeah, the more comfortable you are with your vulnerability, the more you'll be able to respond, see, and respond to other people. But where do you learn to be comfortable with your vulnerability? Right, it's the, chick it's the chicken and the egg, right? And that's, I love how- It's um, the chicken and the egg. So it's, 
So the thing that you see in Oprah magazine, which is like these little formulas, you know, you have to accept yourself. And, and, and it, it, it could be really it's saddening. Like, no, don't do that. Right? You know, because it leaves people standing in front of the mirror saying, I accept me, I accept right. me, which is nonsense, of course. Well, and it can be maddening, right? I feel like I, a lot of times we'll see the the memes and the tropes and all these things, and it's back to this feeling of, of feeling, uh, at least for me, um, like a failure, right? Like these platitudes, okay, we can all agree that it's a good idea to love unconditionally and, and accept yourself and so forth, but how, right? And that's, I feel like, where we end up back to uh, this, um, you know, sort of toxic pop culture that's based on and predicated on a lot of these myths of how how the phrase I love that you I learned from you how we human it's like there's this we're in this massive distortion field in terms of how we human um yes and I think the thing is it seems to me which is kind of a depressing road to go down that um with all our technology and all our affluence and all our apparent progress we actually aren't paying attention to who we are as human beings and so we're we're going down the road where um you know society is not crafted for who we are you know we, we're not society's not crafted for loving communities i grew up in an english pub i was a kid in an english working class pub which was i probably my parents would be put in jail for child abuse now because you you know i was I was in the pub. I was standing on little stool, uh, drying glasses and watching everything going on. I'm sure that warped my personality in lots of ways, okay? I don't think I'd be here today. But what I saw in that English pub, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. The English pub was diverse as hell. Upper class people, you know, the um, the admirals and the, the, um, the lieutenants from the Navy, working class people, poor people, little old lady who lived alone would come in every night and sit and drink a sherry and make it last for two hours. Everyone would talk to her. You know, um, weird people, the magic guy who couldn't do tricks even at birthday parties and um, poor people and conservative people, radical people, um, everybody. The ladies of the night came into the pub. Okay. Um, it sounds like cheers and- where everybody knows your name. Yes, right? it was more than cheers, though, because it was more diverse. Okay. What I saw was that um, people it was diverse. People were different, and they, they'd fight, and they'd get into arguments, and they'd hurt each other. But the bottom line was, it was a, there was an unwritten level in that pub that, um, well, we're all human, we're all human, aren't we? We're all members of this family. Most of them came into the pub every day. They didn't come for the booze. They came for the connection. And my father's job was to make it all safe. He'd say, you know, if somebody's getting kind of hot, <laughs> he'd walk around the bar and put his big hands down on their shoulder and say, now, now, Sid, let's just calm down, shall we? And yes, that's right. Yes, good idea. Have another beer. Right. And so he'd take care of it. He created the safety and the order. And I would watch all these people and they they connected. They talked. And when they disagreed, um, it was all right. Because 
they knew that they could, uh, that their relationship would survive the disagreement. It wasn't, I disagree with you, therefore you are bad, therefore you are, I will call you names, therefore you are, I might call you names because it was an English pub. <laughs> but five minutes later, I'd say, I'd say, sorry for calling you that. Sorry for calling you that name, Sid. Sid would say, that's all right, Jim. You know, just don't do it again, okay? And like, every, it would be all right, okay? So there was a sense of connection that I think most of us long for and don't have. Well, and don't and you then think that, the... so don't you think that at least in America, I'm guessing Canada's um, pretty similar and, and Great Britain, uh, that we're, that increasingly we're in this cancel culture. And I realize that, you know, a million eyes are rolling right now, like, oh, cancel culture. But if, and you know, it's like cancel with the big C versus little C, like you said, like you, what you just described, it feels like we're so impatient with each other. We're so, um, unwilling to engage, right? You don't like what I've said, F off, right? And I might, not, right. Even, and I might not even tell you. you, I might just never, you know, ghost yep. you and never respond to you again. Like, does that? That's right. And, and the, the line is, this gets me. The line is, I will not talk to you because I feel unsafe. Exactly. You know, like, hang on, hang on. I'm just talking here. I don't have a, a cudgel in my hand or a, um, what do you mean? You, you feel unsafe. Like we can't connect if we, if we, if we can't talk, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. It's, um, but it feels like I feel that like also goes our... back to trying to build that safe place to have the conversation, right? That's right. That's right. And I feel like somehow with the best of intentions, this is just my vision, of course, that the best of intentions we, we have tried in the last few years to, um, create um, a more equal or diverse or um, you know empathic society but somehow it's backfired somehow it's like wait a minute no we're even more polarized yeah. we're even more in little groups we're even more you're the you either belong in this group or you're the bad guy what the it's hell? been wild and to see that pendulum swing from from you know, oh, these are the things we can't talk about. Oh, those people are too sensitive. Now this that's we're doing the same things on this side. These are the things we can't talk about. These people are too sensitive. And I keep thinking that's about right. and everyone has to self censor. Yeah. And what and censoring doesn't work for connection. And then everyone's more disconnected and then everyone's more vigilant and then everyone feels more at risk. Give me a break. You can see this. You know, somebody said to me, um, I notice, Sue, that you don't put pronouns after your name. I said, no, I, I don't. I've never really felt the need. And they say, well, you know, what? don't you worry about using pronouns in therapy? And I say, well, no, because every time I go and look at the list of pronouns, they've got longer and I'm almost sure to make a mess up. Yeah. I can't remember them all. So they said, well, then what do you do? And I feel this is obvious to me. Maybe somebody will take issue with this, but I say, I'm old fashioned. I ask you your name. <laughs> I use people's names. Yes. To me, you're Jeff, whether you're black, brown, some variation of, um, you know, trans, lesbian, whatever you are, whatever you are, religious, non-religious, conservative, radical, you're Jeff, aren't you? I, I, let's meet as Jeff and Sue. 
Um, isn't that what human beings do? Isn't that kind of the way we created something called society in the beginning? You know, you don't have to be like me. I don't have to be like you. Do we? You know, like, um, can we, can we just call each other by name? Is that such a radical idea? So Sue, you advocate for this idea, this great idea of growing each other. And I feel like they're yes. implied in, in the last hour's worth of conversation, but it's such an important idea that I just, I'd love, we've got to wrap up in just a moment. I'd love for you to talk about this concept of growing each other. Well, one of the things that I found the most fascinating over the years, working with all these different kinds of couples, many of whom were struggling with not just relationship distress, but associated anxiety and, and depression and traumatic stress, um, was that when the couple started to come together and help each other with their vulnerability and um, call in a way that the other person could hear and respond, when they started to come together, they grew each other, that the individuals would grow, the individuals, and we know that this is what happens in secure attachment naturally. This what happens between mothers and children, fathers and children. You know, we know this. This is this is what happens. That um, belonging leads to becoming. But the, these couples would grow each other. People would become depressed. Wives would become suddenly more confident and go out and do things like go back to grad school and you know start a business and you know um, drinking husbands would suddenly turn and learn how to be a father and feel fantastic about it and start teaching little league and you know the people would change they grow each other so this is what i mean and i mean we in individual therapy in efit emotionally focused individual therapy which we haven't paid attention to over the years we are now i have a book that came out last year on it um a primer on efit you know and lots of my trainers are doing it now we do that without the other partner in the room we do it you know um we all walk around with a cast of characters in our head that help define who we are. And um, people, what people do often is they we have central people who decide who we are, who, who, where we, 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 we learn certain things about ourselves. And what we do in individual therapy, if we don't have a partner to have a new kind of conversation with, we have people tune into that image in their head and talk to that person. You know, like, um, I was very lucky. I had the most amazing, amazing father. I don't think I'd be here right now if I didn't have this amazing yeah. father. And, you know, um, I know that when things get very stressful for me, I can close my eyes and tune into his voice in my head. Right. And he, he just conveys this sense of security and balance that leaves me in a different place. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I know that when I get a new book that comes to the door and for the first three seconds, I say, oh my goodness, look at that. My God, I did it. Whoa. Then a voice comes in and it's my mother. My mother says, now, now, don't get all full of yourself. Don't get that. Who do you think it matters that book? Nobody's going to read that book. It's not going to make any difference at all. Just go and do the washing up and come down to earth. That's my mother. So, you know, we help people 
talk to the key people in their lives who have where they've defined themselves, I can thank goodness I can turn to my mother and say, Oh, I never understood why you needed to do that, but I'm not gonna help you. I'm not gonna do that. It's okay. I'm all right. But I do go to my husband, I say, Do you think this book um will make a difference? And of course, uh, you know, he bless him, he says, Of course it will, sweetie. It's a great book. You know, it was important. I'm so glad you wrote it. So, you know, we're always defining ourselves in relation to the people that matter to us. Well, and, and Sue, I just, I'm so grateful for you to share that even you, high priestess, the greatest couples therapy in the world, <laughs> I, not my word, John Gottman's yeah. word, not my word. Um, he did not call me a high priestess. Oh, well, he he did. That's, I'm going to get all that credit. All that credit goes to yours, really. All right, okay, all right. No, okay. but the, the thing that I really want to, to tease out here is that even you with all that success and accolades and all that right and all that you've been through and all the you know that you've had to endure that you still feel doubt from some time to time I was actually listening to what uh oh the uh with Jason Bateman that podcast um smart and he had Keanu Reeves on yeah smartless and Keanu Reeves talks about after he gets done with the job and he lays on his couch for three days and you know, if he doesn't have the next movie booked, he, you know, he starts to get in his own head. Keanu Reeves! Of course. And I'm just like, okay, well then there, you know, when I'm feeling doubt, just little old me, okay, I don't have to feel bad. I think it's a point you were making a little while ago that it's like I feel bad that I feel doubtful or I feel bad that I screwed up again. And so I just, I really appreciate that honesty because, golly, I mean, it's just, it's so, I mean, back to the lower Andrea, we're all... We're all vulnerable. Indeed. And we've got this silly thing about celebrity. I hate gurus, okay? I, I hate them because they're a myth. I don't want to be a guru, and we're all, we're all, and you know, people like the Dalai Lama are delightful because they give away their guruhood. He, somebody asked him how he dealt with fear, the Dalai Lama. This is a good place to end, actually. How he dealt with fear. And of course, everyone thinks he's going to say, oh, I sit and meditate myself to death. You know, and of course, or I pray or so. He doesn't. You know what he said? He said, I close my eyes and I think of my mother's love. Oh. And what I teach my monks is that when they're scared, I teach them to stand out and call out mother. And I had this flash. Can you imagine the shift that would happen in the world if just for one hour on one day, when everybody got scared, instead of doing whatever we do with it, shut down, blame somebody, freak out, you know, all the freak things. out, yeah. drink, we all turned and gave ourselves permission to yell, mother. Right. right. Of course, the trouble is most of, he has an image of a loving mother in his head and some of us don't That's have the that. That's the that's the conundrum. But listen to what he says. He, he says that. So, yes, we're all vulnerable. We're all overwhelmed by life. We're all, we all struggle through life. We all avoid vulnerability at times, of course. We all long for love. And this is um, the basic image of humanity that attachment science gives us. And it's gold. It's gold for psychotherapy. It's gold for relationships. It's gold for the fact that if we're going to grow as human beings, we have to start where we are, which is recognizing who we are. Um, so yeah, it, you know, um, 
that's why I go on programs like this and talk to brilliant people like you guys oh. who who tell me amazing things like I'm a priestess or something. Forevermore, forevermore. <laughs> there is only one. Sue, so you are amazing. I hope you will come back on our show and- Oh, you were fun to talk to. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we we adore you. It's it's sincere, you could feel it. By the way, I also am gonna admit I'm, I'm often a bad Buddhist, so thanks for being, genuinely, thanks for being so honest. We wanna give a shout out to your husband. You told us before uh, how wonderful he is, John. Um, thanks for helping with the IT. And so much more to talk about. I feel like, I mean, I know, uh, Joanna, you have a million more questions. Brian, you didn't get a word in edgewise today. So we got to get you back on the show, uh, Sue. But thank you, thank you, thank you for, for joining You're us. You're most welcome. And take care of you guys. And thank you for the invitation. It was fun and it was lovely. Take care we'll, of you. Have a great day. Have a day. great day. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it thank again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That was amazing. I love her. It's like, I love her because she's so, um, she's so smart and knowledgeable. She's got a little edge. She keeps it real. She's right. Funny. I love it that she, yeah, she's funny and she cares. Like, I love how the amygdala whisper, it is, it is a thing. She does get credit for that. How you can he hear her in action and feel her in action when she gets into that mode, she lowers her voice and she gets a little slower and, and quieter. And I'm like, oh my God, I totally trust you. Like. Like, let me tell you everything. And, but it's a, it, what I love about it is, and again, for people watching and listening, oh, we can do that for each other, right? That's what I love is that what she, she is showing us what to do, right? If we want to build that safety in our relationships and things are going a little haywire, like, ooh, you're, and my, 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 my little guy, my uh, son, Alex, who's 10, when he's feeling upset, his voice goes down. He talks a little quietly, like, and I'll, I'll know, okay, it's time for me to do the same. And so it's just such a delve, like, ninja technique, right? Just to, like, shift. But, you know, you have to be aware and, and very intentional to make that shift. Anyway, I have a ton of things to say, but I've been talking <laughs> for, like, 78 minutes straight. Um, Brian, you didn't get a word in edgewise today. Sorry, bud. Um, what are your, what are your favorite takeaways, observations? What did you love most about, um, our discussion with, uh, Sue? Well, I mean, uh, I get now why, why you guys love her so much. She is wonderful. I mean, I can't wait to have her back on. Um, yeah, I mean, God, there were so many times I wanted to, to jump in, but I also did not want to like stop her train of thought because, um, yeah, I mean, exactly. It's a powerful train. It was yeah. like a bullet train, a bullet train and a freight train, all all wrapped in one. Um, yeah, and she she very briefly kind of mentioned um, we were, when we were talking about the mythos, uh, you know, in media and and um, kind of stereotypes and things like that. I actually mm -hmm. learned an amazing thing from one of my friends. Uh, she's an amazing actor, um, but her acting coach is one of the more like famous ones in New York. And he has a, a great thing that says, uh, anger isn't an emotion. It's a response. Ah, Because I mean, he, look at it from an acting perspective, like someone is angry is such a boring, you know, it doesn't like, why are you angry? And then, but that, that translates so heavily into real life. And it, it actually with my fiance, Sarah, um, when we first started dating, she'd get mad about something and she would only surface level be angry and not realize like that anger is just a response to something like you're either um, 
embarrassed or you're you're feeling slighted or or you um it's literally a thorn in a lion's paw like uh, you're mad because it hurts you know you know and so there's like like this sometimes you're mad not just because it hurts this happened to me literally like lord Lord, Lord. um i i got mad and then i didn't like my reaction and that's what i it was like i i felt embarrassed because i'm like oh am i not supposed to be above it all I, I work so hard to cultivate peace and acceptance and to know how to handle these things. So it's good. It got me back into humility where I, it's always a good place to be. Um, you know, not like I try to be anything other than, you know, humble. But but I just I feel like to me it is it is um, it just it's like a double whammy. Like not only does it kind of suck to feel, you know those those feelings that you describe with Sarah, but I, I'm I'm assuming not to project onto her, but that then you also go like, oh, don't I know better now, right? And then <laughs> you ju- then you judge yourself, yeah. Then you have right. shame, and and yeah, a few things trigger more intense anger than shame. And if you're feeling well, a yeah, shame, that embarrassment that you felt thing, angry, that's mm-hmm. a spiral. And, but it's weird because like the it's funny both of us have done this uh, as we've you know grown together. Um, but uh, understanding why you're angry makes you a lot less angry. Like yeah. it, it's so funny because like I mean even in like the littlest things, right? Like um, let's say I'm at Dunkin' Donuts and someone is like wiling out and like in line or whatever, and I'm getting like mad at them. Did you and, say wiling uh, out? Yeah, it's like He's they're, they're acting crazy. Me. What Sorry, does that they're, mean? They're like, they're, they're acting out. a fool. Like, well, you well, know, cuckoo. they're, they're, yeah. Oh. Um, they're, I'm going to use that being... with, my, with my kids. I'm going to ask them why they're wilding out and they're going to fall over. <laughs> they're going to be horrified and delighted. They're like, hey, hey, kids, this dinner is bussing, right? Uh, <laughs> but even, uh, like, like, okay, let's say I'm, I'm there and then, like, like, I'm getting mad or whatever. Um, and it's like, maybe two reasons right one like i guess for some reason in new york i have an expectation that everyone's going to be chill in a line and that's kind of on me for having that expectation but also amen brother b though like like if someone is like being rude to the the employee or whatever it's like i'm feeling empathetic and like that like almost like slighted on their behalf it's like they don't make enough to deal with your crap or whatever right and i'm getting mad at them like um, and it's like, I'm not saying that anger is never justified. I'm just saying that like, like there's usually like underlying, uh, causes or messages under it. And, and that's always so, and once I don't know, you just find interesting that, then you can be like, what did I want to create? Like in that moment, if what you're <laughs> feeling, and, and this goes right back to Sue and something she said that was so moving to me. It's like, what do you want to create? Well, okay. I'm feeling slighted on behalf of this person that works here. Like they're being so rude. Instead of being mad at them, which makes things more stressful, then you can be like, oh, that's what that feeling is. And then when you see them, you can do what Sue was saying and look them in the eye and be like, I saw that. That felt challenging. And wow. And, you know, that process, that's actually going to make the difference, right? Is to be like, wow, that was that was a handful. And I I watched that and I saw that because sometimes don't we just like she said, we just want to be seen. Right. Right. Can you believe that guy? Yeah, here's an extra five bucks. You don't deserve yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I think it it's just back to the ability to have that maturity that you describe, Brian. And you know, cue the applause for being so honest oh. and keeping it real. Thank you, darling. Um, but I again, I yay! All right, we love that. Um, 
But I just, I think it is, it's like the uninvited Buddha thing, right? This thing happens. We didn't want it to happen. It's not Not what we expected. And And, and there's a little kind of bit of victim in that, like, God, now it's taking me longer. And I, by the way, you and I totally relate. At times, when I'm a fast walker, I'll be walking um, up 6th Avenue in Manhattan, and it's freaking crowded. I'm like, why are these people walking so slow? Like, I own the Galdarn uh, sidewalk, and I know you've talked about that, Brian, where it's like, it's so, uh, I just, I feel like it's so narcissistic, I think, right? Like, it's just about me, me. But I, and so I love this idea of when when we feel anger for uh, what I've been trying to do is is really to to explore that. What am I, you know, whether it's a person or a situation or whatever it is, what is it teaching me? That's to me, that's the uninvited Buddhist situation. Where where do I feel threatened? Right. And then um, I always feel like I go through that process and it's, oh, my gosh, it's it's so liberating on the other side. Right. But it's that it's that journey of feeling one's own humanness. Right. And, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, that for me anyway, again, feeling a little out of control. Right. Because when you're angry now, you're I mean, you said the word respond. I would say to me, the word is react. Right. I react when I'm out of control. And then and then I'm embarrassed, you know, then like, oh, shit, like I'm embarrassed that and nobody else even knows. Like, but I know because I really aim for integrity. And then it's like, okay, this didn't happen. You know, it's back to the little Tony Robbins. Is it happening for me? Right. Or to me. And I feel like more and more when I'm able to just a little dispassionately get on the other side and go, God, what just happened? All right. How is this happening for me? What do I have to learn from it? Because something, some, there's something in here for me, you know, and that to me is profoundly empowering. Um, but I yeah. agree with you, Joanna, too, back into the um, Sue Johnson and EFT, that when we do that work, that we can get curious and empathetic with ourselves, then we're able to bring that to other people. So I have this little family that I follow on Instagram, and I don't do a lot of these family vloggers, but this is the deaf family. They're called the deaf family. And the parents and all the kids are all either deaf or clinically hard of hearing. And I love watching Mm -hmm. them because I learn so much about how we communicate with each other. When you're not using spoken language, it's so much more visual. Like the little baby's like 16 months old and he reaches up and he grabs his dad's head and it just turns it. So like, dad, listen to me, Mm -hmm. you know? just gently and because that's a way of getting dad's attention and it's generally acceptable you know what I mean instead of we might think it's rude the dad then locks eyes on him and they they talk and and the amazing thing was this little baby was babbling in American Sign Language and the dad reflecting back with American Sign Language babble and when you see it like that and the little boy is delighted and gets more enthusiastic and and the dad is the dad is babbling and then the dad is also adding words and clarifying and I thought this is the most magical and affirming thing to see played out and it reminded me of how I want to be not just with my older kids but with my husband and my mom and my friends and that sort of very I'm right here kind of feeling I love that I I just I feel like well I mean we know that um oxytocin is developed through eye contact Right. I mean, it's like they say eyes are the window of the soul, but there's really something happening in our nervous system. 
But uh, so one, just on a physiological, biological level. But what I love about that, and I'm right there with you, Joanna, when when you just go, that's what I want. That's what matters most. But I always feel like here's the rub, I think, for so many of us. It's like we want somebody else, so many of us, somebody else to give that to us. But it's back to that's what we give. Right. And that's, you know, so that's how we show up and how we see other people. And that becomes this like genuinely holy, karmic, just, you know, wonderful. um, It's almost magic. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is what we craved most. Right. And then I feel like but in part, we don't do that because we're stressed and we have too much to do. And, and what were you talking? Oh, the uh, heroic individualism for moms. It's like we, so, you know, so often we we either inherit or somehow we give ourselves these um, um, undoable, like these impossible tasks, right? And then we wonder why we can't just freely babble, if you will, you know, kind of babbling with each other well we have too freaking much to do right and we're telling ourselves we have this goddamn you know to-do list i'm a freaking slave to my to-do list it's the worst and i have to tell myself my kids are getting ready to go to uh, sleepaway camp for three and a half weeks i tell myself i mean this last week it's like okay anything you want to do mom's here right and and because they're getting ready to leave and they've never done that before and so, yeah, I just, I feel like we all know the answer. It takes a profound amount of, um, I think, discipline to get over that um, that fear-based messaging of, I mean, back to like being enough. It's like, I need to show that I am the, you know, perfection, perfectionistic superstar mom that, you know, that we were talking about before. And um, and if I don't, right, then, um, then I'm not good enough and... You know, and then I feel badly and, you know, cue the downwards spiral. But it's like it's so much BS. I think Sue was saying um, how so often fear becomes so much bigger and and ambiguous. And I've, I've certainly had to rein myself in when I'm feeling overwhelmed when it's like it is it's not rational. Like it really isn't rational. But going unbridled and unchecked, it it becomes this, um, you know, this this crazy out of control ghost anyway i feel like i'm on this long tangent but well, that um, was kind of where i was going a little bit when i was saying that about like we did we are so locked down and nobody in you know 98 99 2000 2005 i don't know anybody was calling out like hey the moms can't do it all it was like we were there was this pedestal and then what i noticed for myself is i do start to shut down (laughs) And I do yep. get resentful and there's no language for asking for help. And then what happens to the next generation when the moms who are doing everything are shut down and resentful? You know, there's that's a big burden on our kids, you know? Well, and I think it's ironic because we're, I mean, I'll speak uh, in, in my life, speak to my life. I try so hard, right, between the work that I do and raising kids and uh as a member of my family and community, it's like I'm trying so freaking hard. And in part, I'm, it's ironic that I'm creating this disconnection because I'm so goal oriented. It's like, I want to plan the party. I, I want to make sure my kids are getting to camp, blah, 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 getting them to basketball, getting them to baseball and or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it's like that mindset of, do, you know, like back to the human doing versus human being. 
that at, for me, I've had to really get get clear and, and again, much more disciplined and, and grow. You know, I always, I call myself, oh, you guys know that. I'll say to myself, Andrea, it's time to grow up emotionally, right? And get real about what is really important. And I come from a very uh, uh, workaholism, perfectionism, right? I mean, these things that are so insidious, it's not okay for me to have, to, to drink too much, to have an eating disorder. Like there are a bunch of things I can't do because I've seen the shadow side of all that. So I, I never allowed myself, I did allow myself to have unrealistic expectations that I could never, ever, ever meet. And I almost killed myself trying to meet those things. And then yes, Joanna, then you add trying to be a super mom on top of it and getting to the school. And not that I'm on the PTA, but I show up for the field trips. I'm doing all that. Like, let me show up and help with the, you know, yeah. the fair or the carnival or make the hamburgers or and it's just like, oh my yeah. God, it's just, it is just too much. And then no wonder I, I feel angry and disconnected. Yeah. Right. And then my husband will say, you're doing too much. Yeah. I'm like, ah, I gotta freak yeah. out. But then what do you right? cut? That's the hard thing. Yeah. What gets cut? It's, it is like, like I, I got that bee sting that got infected a couple weeks ago. That's and it. what was wild about it was working, 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 kids, 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 whatever, whatever. And not noticing that I had a bee sting that was making my arm ginormous and then got oh, good infected Lord. and was oh, flaming up until someone was like, what the hell is wrong with your arm? And I was like, oh, I'll be okay. Oh, and my God. You sound like me. Yeah, yes, that's what totally. we do. Like, I'm yeah. just going to keep going. I'm yeah, just going to keep going. And then yeah. what happened was all it's of a like sudden. like flesh wound. You remember in, um, what was that, the, uh, the night? It's only a flesh wound. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which we what movie is that? Mind Python. Like, what was weird? It's I Mind said, Python. Black yes, Knight. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It's like for me at that moment, I was like, "This is like putting the lobster in the cold water in the pot and putting the lid on, where it just goes slowly hotter and hotter and hotter, and like you don't notice until it was like all of a sudden I looked and there were blisters across my skin, and I was like, "Yeah, I should maybe go to the doctor." And once I started getting better, I was like, "Yeah, that was like the temperature was turned up so slowly." That I yeah. didn't notice. And then I was forced to lie on the couch with my arm elevated for 48 hours. And I was like, well, this is the life. I this, never yeah, can I get that. A, can I get stung by bees every day? I would right. like to I was like, uh, like, uh, invite an apiary here. People but I think bring you're things to me watching TV, you know, totally. slow it down. But, but your point is the right it's the right question to ask. What do we give up? And, and everybody obviously has to answer that question. How I'm answering the question for myself, I went through a, a pretty intense feeling of um, regret and guilt. I mean, it's, it, it comes and goes because I'm a mom, right? But a couple weekends ago, I went through a really intense feeling of guilt and regret um, by, you know, by virtue. And I do a lot for and with my kids, right? But there's somehow, again, this never enough. And I've, you know, I've, you know, for many, many years have, you know, most of my life felt like not enough, not enough, keep going, keep going more, more, more. And I finally just come to this conclusion, like, I just got to knock it off. I just have to say to myself, it's yeah. not true. And then, and critically, uh, and it's not a, it's, it's messy. I wish it could be a little easier. It's not. But to say to myself, how I show up for my kids and my family and the people that I love, right? That, that quality of showing up and being present, because that connection is the most important thing, right? And I feel like back to what Sue was talking about, that this profound sense of disconnection is what is calling, uh, causing these deaths of despair, causing all this trauma, 
calling all this hurt and heartache. And so I, I'm a little bit of the, you know, the Gandhi philosophy of change starts with me. I just, I've had to call myself out and say, okay, the, it, it's okay. The grease and the guilt are appropriate um, because I, I have, I have um, um, isolated myself in service to this mm-hmm. mythical standard that I could never, ever possibly reach. So there is real loss and hurt and heartache in that, but I see it. I'm, I'm willing to now say, how do I change? How can I show up? And even if it's not a ton of time, I mean, back to, I love how she talked about the thing we need to do as parents is create that emotional connection with my kids. So what I know I need to do, even on days when I'm super busy and we're running around, even if it's, if it's five minutes of genuine connection to genuinely see my kids and let them know that I got their back, that I adore them, right? I just feel like that's enough, right? I mean, I say that in air quotes, like that is enough because so often I felt like, oh, it's not enough. I need to play a game of Uno. I need to go on a bike ride. <laughs> you know, like like we need to bake a cake together. And, yeah. and right? And it's just this impossible, unattainable uh, level of, of achievement that really has this uh, uh, ugly underbelly because we, it, it isn't attainable. We actually just published in the last few days an article on your tango that was about basically the person didn't the expert didn't call it this, but basically it was like an achievement addiction. Oh, and yeah. one thing that happens when we have this desperate need for something that might be called mm-hmm. addiction non-clinically yeah. is we get yeah. angry when something gets in the way of it. Like yeah. I need to get my hit. And I found that's my biggest thing oh as God. a parent that I, yeah. I have to stop is it's like, no, 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 no. You're getting in the way of all these things I have to do. And like, how am I going to do my thing if you've got this? And and it's that totally. is so bad. And it's like, got like I need to Achie- find something okay. to put on a post-it so I remember. Achievement addiction. You yeah. heard your first two folks, achievement addiction. But it's interesting to me because I, I am sure it's a dopamine thing. And, I, and I'm like mm-hmm. every bell and every you know, re- you know, uh, neuroreceptor is going off in my head right now. And it reminds me a lot of why we, you know, compulsively check our phones. It's like, ooh, what's that thing that's, you know, like, I, I need the hit. And then to your point, like, I feel good checking stuff off the list. I need the hit. It's telling me I'm doing a good job. Because let's face it, for most of us, we're not told very often that we're doing a good job. Yeah. Right. And not that we should sit around and wait for it, but somehow having that feedback loop. And so I feel like it ends up being this this thing that we we get from our brains and our nervous system, to your point, we get the hit when we can cross it off the list or we get that thing done. And I'm with you. OMG, at times it's like back to trying to be a good Buddhist. All right, there is a, um, a bottleneck. There is an unexpected uh, uh, curveball in my plans. Mm-hmm. And now what do we do with that, right? I mean, and to me, that is also growing up emotionally. And it's hard for us, Joanna, as as type A Aries, yeah. right? But it's, you know, it just, it does, right. <laughs> what are you going to do with us? Um, I, I'm, but, I'm a multiple Gemini. I'm like Gemini all the way down. So you, you're I, uh, Geminis are who can handle us, I think. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all yeah. right. All good things come to an end. And unfortunately, that means it's the end of our show today. Of course, we will be back again and again. We have so many amazing guests teed up. But before we end up today, I want to make sure you all know how to find Dr. Sue Johnson's work. You can go to Dr. Sue Johnson, D-R, oh my God, D-R-S-U-E, 
J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. Put it in the show notes for me, will you, Brian, my friend? Um, I'm like, people you got can it. spell Johnson. Oh, there we go. Yeah, people can spell Johnson with an E. And, you know, anyway. Um, so just to really drive home the point, there are incredible resources. Uh, there are a lot of um, EFT counselors and clinicians out there. If that's your thing and, and you want to um, meet with somebody in person or over Zoom, but if you just say, you know what, I want to tiptoe into this, um, there is an online program that's been very, very proven to be very effective. Um, she's got multiple books. She's got the workbook. So if this show has resonated with you or the things that Sue has had to say has resonated with you, you can follow up, learn more, give it a try. And, um, you, you know, my hope is that you also find uh, you're able to transform um, in your relationships. All right. Um, uh, and otherwise, please um, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, like us, follow us, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, if you're interested in asking questions or have ideas for the show, please write to us at openrelationships at yourtango.com. We are going to be looking for more people to do little mini co free coaching sessions with me on the show. So if you got a relationship issue, whether it's with your spouse, your child, a sister, a friend, uh, an ornery coworker, uh, so we are doing free relationship coaching here on Open Relationships. So far, the results have been pretty awesome, folks. So um, if you're willing to come on, thank you. If you're willing to come on, and I, I emphasize this because so many of these relationship issues are so, you know, they have such common roots. Right, and that's what we're here to do. We're here to be open. We're here to be vulnerable. We're here um, to to transform together. So that's it. Thanks for watching and listening, and we'll look forward to seeing you in the next show. Bye, everybody.